Welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damon Osophy with your host, Paul Frederick. Greetings, friends and fellow Damons. I wanted to start this episode out by asking for a favor from my listeners, which I don't do all the time. But check this out. My Damonosophy Twitter account is at 988 followers. Now, that's not that amazing. Um, I have a humble little little operation going on here. I only need 12 more followers to get to a thousand. I'm asking you all most humbly and appreciatively, if you are on Twitter, go to the Damonosophy Twitter and follow so we can break a thousand followers for this podcast and show the Twitterverse what a Intense, meaningful, and relevant discussion is going on here on Damonosophy. That all being said, I would like to continue a discussion which came up uh, in Portland a couple of weeks ago when I was there, and this has to do uh, with... How do I put this? Gurdjieff's chair boy. So, in case you didn't know, a guy named Fritz Peters earned the illustrious title of Gurdjieff's chair boy. And I'm going to explain how this happened uh, because it's a very interesting story and it leads to some interesting questions. So, Fritz Peters met Gurdjieff when he was, I believe, 11 years old. And he was sent to the Priory. He was an American who lived in New York. And he had a strange kind of situation with his parents, which basically he ended up being um, adopted by Margaret Anderson and Jean Toomer, also known as Ladies of the Rope, the all-female all Gurdjieff group um, that is chronicled in the book by William Patterson called Ladies of the Rope. But basically, they ended up adopting uh, Fritz Peters um, and, and his brother, I think, his older brother. And they, were, they sent him to school in New York, to ordinary school, and then for summer vacation, wanting their adoptive sons to have a, a good education on important things that have to do with uh, reality and one's own state of being, they sent him to the Priory in France for summer school to study under Gurdjieff. So that is how Fritz Peters met Gurdjieff. And the first summer that he showed up there, he went to meet Gurdjieff. And this is all talked about um, in a book 
you can find out there called uh, Boyhood with Gurdjieff. Fritz Peters writes about his experience in there. Uh, but he went and met Gurdjieff. And, you know, everyone who came to the Priory, they had to meet privately with Gurdjieff and, and basically get interviewed. And, and Gurdjieff, you know, asked him, why do you want to be in this school? What do you what do we bring to this? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, you know, Fritz Peters, you know, he's very, very intimidated. I mean, he basically considered Gurdjieff to be a Christ-like figure uh, from what he had learned from, from others. So he had really high expectations and, and was very, very humbled and very cautious in, in approaching him, as one might expect in that kind of situation. Uh, but basically, then Gurdjieff, you know, said, you're, you're fine, you know, he accepted him into the school. And he gave him a task, and he pointed out over the, the lawn of the priory. And there was like, you know, several lawns. It's a huge um, estate, basically. And he said, I want you to mow these lawns every day. That is your work. And this is the most important, this is the most important task that I'm giving you. You must do this. You must complete all the lawns within one week. I gave him some... Um, really a tight parameter, time parameter to complete it. And he said, this is such important work. You must complete this no matter what anyone else might say to you about it. So Fritz Peter said, you know, yes, Mr. Gurdjieff, I will do this. I will carry out this work no matter what. Nothing will disobey me. So he went out the very next day and got right to work on it. Uh, right to work on pushing a, 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 a you know, it was, it was a automatic lawnmower. You got to work pushing that over the uh, grounds. And really soon after this happened, I think it's like the first or second week he was doing this, Gurdjieff went and had his famous car accident. So this, this, this takes you off into a, a potentially a whole other subplot. You know, Gurdjieff was in a car wreck. He was injured very badly. He was in a coma for uh, a couple of weeks. And he, eventually he came back to the Priory, and he was bedridden for a long time after this, several weeks. And um, eventually he, when he started to come out of it is when he started to dictate uh, Beelzebub's Tales and other really significant things about the Gurdjieff work kind of flow out of this instant. But for Fritz Peters, he was still stuck with his task of mowing the lawns and his, you know, Gurdjieff's bedroom was in the Priory and with a window that overlooked all these front lawns and other members of the group. And there's like about 150 people, uh, 150 students engaged in the Gurdjieff work who were at the Priory at the time. Some of the leaders of the group started coming to him and saying, telling Fritz Peters, you need to stop mowing the lawn. Because the noise from the lawnmower is disturbing Mr. Gurdjieff. And he is trying to rest and recuperate from this horrible accident. So you need to stop mowing this lawn, these lawns, completely. And immediately Fritz Peters remembered the words of Gurdjieff, who, who told him, No matter what anyone says, do not stop mowing the lawns. Do not fail in your promise to me, in your commitment to mow 
these lawns. So he kept it up. Fritz Peters kept it up. He kept mowing the lawns. Um, and even though the, the members of the group started to resent him, like no one would sit with him during meals. Everyone, you know, thought he was an asshole because he kept mowing the lawns, this, this, this impetuant, insubordinate little 11-year-old. But he kept up to it. He kept up to it. So eventually what happens is Gurdjieff, you know, uh, one day he's out there mowing the lawns and he would always like look up at the window to see if Gurdjieff is ever going to appear. And then one day finally he's mowing the lawn and he looks up there and he sees Gurdjieff appearing in the window. Gurdjieff's looking down on him. Fritz stops the lawnmower, turns it off, and he's looking up at Gurdjieff. And he says Gurdjieff gave a little, his characteristic stroke of his mustache. And Fritz considered that, he, he interpreted that as Gurdjieff's acknowledgement and good job for, for continuing and, and staying committed to your oath to me and to yourself. And Fritz Peters talks about how he fell down, fell down crying at that moment in a moment of great passion. But then um, what happened is soon after that, then Gurdjieff like graduates him from that and, and has him doing other jobs. And the next thing he wants him to do is to be his chair boy. And basically um, follow him around uh, with a chair because... Um, you know, since Gurdjieff is so, so still um, tired and, and injured that he needs to sit down frequently. But what, what Gurdjieff did is he called Fritz Peters into his room and he said, I have an even more important mission for you. I'm going to make you my chair boy. And you will um, basically, you know, follow me around with this chair when I need to sit down. But I have to tell you a secret, and you cannot tell this to anyone else. And here's the secret. I am basically blind from my accident. But no one else in the school knows this, because I've been able, to, been able to fake them. And I need to change everything about how the work is going here, about the structure of the, the daily classes and whatnot. Everything must change. So the reality of the situation is that the reason you're going to follow me around as my chair boy is because I need you to guide me in my absence of sight. If I'm about to walk off into a ditch or whatever, you need to stop me and, and, and give me cues. And you'll pull up the chair and let me sit in it, and that'll basically be our cover for everyone else. So that's how Fritz Peters became Gurdjieff's chair boy. And then he went home for, uh, he went home at the end of summer, went back to New York, went to school there, hated it, thought it was all worthless, as so many of us do. Um, but he got through it, and he couldn't wait to, to get back to do real school work with Gurdjieff at the Priory. So he got back there in the next year. And um, Gurdjieff gave him a new job, which was, uh, in addition to chair boy, was to basically clean his room, clean Gurdjieff's room every day, be his, basically his personal uh, 
butler and house cleaner and, and bring him coffee whenever he wanted it. And, and so then there's lots of uh, colorful stories that uh, Fritz Peterson has about Gurdjieff's um, hygiene habits. Um, he talks about how incredibly filthy he was. Uh, he never had to clean up anything so disturbing in his life. And he, and he stopped short of giving details out of respect for Mr. Gurdjieff. And he also reflects that perhaps Gurdjieff was making things worse for him as a, as a test of some kind. But, um, and, 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 and also Gurdjieff wanted to order coffee at, at all sorts of bizarre times. Like he'd, you know, want coffee at three in the morning and all at weird times he's, he's having students in and out of his room to give them dictations for the book, uh, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson, which is the other really interesting thing about this time period is that all of uh, Beelzebub's tales flow out of the this time period and, and is very much a product of these conditions that were going on um, at the Priory at that time. So Fritz was becoming increasingly f- fatigued at the demands of keeping up with uh, being... Mr. Gurdjieff's personal chair boy and uh, cleanup boy also. And one day when he was in his room, he sort of had a, a, a breakdown about when are you going to, when are you going to like teach me something? Because he'd been doing all this and, you know, all this work out of, out of, uh, in good faith that this was part of the teaching, but I don't feel I'm being taught anything. So Gurdjieff says, Fritz, I I want you to look out my window and tell me what you see. Fritz looks out the window and he sees the big oak tree out there and he says, I see an oak tree. Gurdjieff says, yes, and what is on the tree? Fritz looks and he says, oh, there's, there's acorns on the tree. Gurdjieff says, yes, and what will happen to the acorns? Fritz says, they will fall off of the tree onto the ground and then grow up into new trees. Gurdjieff asks them, all of them? All of them grow into trees? Fritz thinks about it. He says, no, only a few. Only a few out of potentially hundreds of thousands of acorns that fall will ever grow into trees. Maybe only one or two will grow into trees. And why is that? Some of them fall on bad soil. Some of them fall in a bad shady place. Some of them get eaten by predators, birds, mice. Some of them fall into perfect conditions and don't get eaten, but they just 
don't want to grow for some reason. So only a few will grow to the ultimate potential that is really dictated to them by their essence from the very beginning of their coming into existence. And it's no prohibition. There's no interference to pre- prevent this growth. It is, it is all only what is provided by nature. It is nature which establishes the conditions in which only a few will be able to finally fully grow into oak trees. And it is the same for many things, and it is the same for man. It is the same for man in terms of the question of his possible evolution, the question of his coming into being, his dynamic personal evolution. And that is that only a few will do this, not because the many are prohibited from it, not because the knowledge is kept secret and hidden away, but because nature only allows for and encourages only the few to be able to do that. So there is no injustice in this. There is no cause to have regret or to feel that this must somehow be, this conditions must somehow be altered artificially in order to try and change this equation because the equation is something that's far beyond us. There are laws that are based upon cosmic influences and natural influences that um, are not something that we can really alter. So um, I think Dr. Aquino would talk about the same idea in his book, Mindstar, in terms of the Netchers. The Netchers represent the natural law and the conditions that we find ourselves in. And that within that, there is also a place where a non-natural influence or isolate intelligence or the potential for human self-conscious evolution exists and grows within that framework. And it's funny, once you realize the nature of consciousness and that consciousness emerges from the same phenomena as, as free will, you realize how the major religions of the world, 
the monotheistic religions, the Abrahamic religions, which do, for the most part, seek to force others to comply with their vision. Once you realize the nature of consciousness and the, the necessarily free nature of consciousness, it's, it's ridiculous to think that you could force people to pursue that. And then you realize that's, uh, that, of course, that's not what any of the Abrahamic religions are about. None of them are really about personal consciousness or free will, even though in in some of their pa the passages that they have, they they talk about uh, the the nature of will and man has free will, but they also talk about how making and and I'm thinking of the uh, epistles of Paul here largely um, that if you make the wrong decision, then you're going to be damned for all hell. So there's not really free will doesn't you know really exist. But the more you pursue the nature of it and the more you pursue the structure of, of esoteric schools through sources like, um, like, like Gurdjieff writings or sources like uh, Dr. Flower's book, Lords of the Left-Hand Path, um, you see that, that the nature of legitimate esoteric schools is, is generally always small. And that has to do with this equation about only, uh, only a few this basically natural law that only a few will really have an interest in this, um, in this avenue of, of personal evolution. Um, so you realize the, uh, the folly of, of major religions and, and that the function of these cannot be for um, individual self-consciousness or evolution, but really only for obedience, for, for securing... Um, and holding the obedience of, of large numbers of people. That's the function that these things have. It might have been way back a long time ago, um, the ideas that went into writing some of the Gospels might have been ideas that came out of esoteric schools. And there might be fragments here and there in the Koran, you might find fragments of Sufi wisdom um, and Sufi ideas that go back to teachings of Zarathustra or, or something like that. You know, I find the fragments of it, but all these fragments have been taken and redesigned and retooled and put back together into systems of um, massive systems of coercion, systems of mass coercion and, and control of individuals, which is why you know, the experience of, of an individual waking up is almost always like that of, of Neo in the Matrix, um, a, an awakening that um, he, he is alone and a, um, a um, two-eyed individual in the, or a one-eyed individual in the land of the blind. Um, and, and that the, the necessity for getting out of here involves help from a few people. It involves contacts from a few people to help get you out of the Matrix of delusion and lies um, that we all find ourselves in. And, and really the mass movements, the mass religions are really just mechanisms to help keep individuals embedded in the lie and unaware that they are living in a lie. So the first step with any of this is 
the understanding that your experience of of awakening, your experience of moving into a more conscious state of existence is always initially a very, very personal experience. And that experience of awakening is often accompanied by a sense of aloneness. You know, a sense of uh, being one, one isolate entity within a huge sea of, 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 of emptiness, just only a pure aloneness. And that can be kind of frightening. But then you start to look around within there and you start to see things with new eyes. And so then the next stage, the next phase, and this is where, you know, Timothy Leary said, find the others. Um, the next stage is finding the others. And that also means finding the few. Right away, there's that realization that most people aren't interested in this. And most people won't be impressed by your experience of awakening. They won't understand it. They'll think you're crazy. You know? <laughs> That's why a lot of people, when they start following this way, they start to um, basically lose friends. And what you realize is that a lot of your friends... Um, are only your friends because of the expectations that they have of you to always be a certain way. But awakening and becoming more conscious of yourself means you are not, not necessarily going to be that certain way all of the time. And so someone going through this kind of process will often find um, a significant changes in their social networks. And this can be a good thing. And you start to realize that a lot of your social networks are only there to keep you suspended in a single place. You're the expectations. So you need to start looking around at that point and find, find the other acorns, the other acorns that want to grow into oak trees. It's pretty simple when you put it in those terms. You just need to find the right acorns. So until next time, my friends, keep looking for those good acorns. Keep looking.